Hey, good morning. Uh, welcome to River Ridge. My name is Matt, and um, so you may notice today, if you look closely here, I have two cup holders because the last two weeks I have had no cup holders, and I ordered one, and then the other one turned up. So I'm going to double barrel water this morning. I'm pretty excited about that, right? Um, hey, welcome uh, to River Ridge. If you're watching online, welcome to you as well. If you're a regular, so glad that you're here. Uh, and if you're here this morning because of baptism today, um, thrilled that you're here to support a friend or family member in baptism and to be a part of that, uh, this special day for that person. Glad that you're here. Uh, if you are new this morning, you haven't been here in a little while, we are going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. It was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, and we have titled this uh, series, Messy Church, Merciful God, uh, because the church in Corinth was made up of a bunch of messy people, just like us, but God in his mercy was showing them how to live, how to do life, how to have church together. Um, and so we are uh, going through this series <clears throat> chapter by chapter and seeing what he wrote to them and how that applies to us in our lives and our context here. Uh, last week we were in chapter 5, and chapter 5 was a very difficult chapter if you were here. Paul talked about confrontation and when it's appropriate and how do we do it and what does that look like. Uh, and then today we are in chapter 6. Uh, and chapter 5 and chapter 6, honestly, are kind of like a one-two punch. Uh, chapter 6 is also a pretty difficult passage that's going to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, it's going to stretch us a little bit. Um, but I believe that as we look at what God is going to say, and again, it may be uncomfortable for some of us, I think we will understand God in a whole new light if we understand what this passage is saying. And then we're going to understand that God is a God of goodness and a God who is for you and not a taskmaster and not an arbitrary rule maker. And so I think it's going to be a really good message this morning, although it may be a little bit hard. Uh, I will also say that uh, this week is PG-13. Uh, last week was PG-13, and apparently Paul writes and sends all the children out of the room in Corinth at the same time, because next week is a bit PG-13 as well. So just a heads up, if you have little ones in here, uh, you may have a little explaining to do later, or depending on, they may have some explaining to do to you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you just for the worship and what it means to enter in, and um, God, I'm just excited for all that we have this morning, all that you have for us this morning in, in the message and uh, the baptisms and the worship and being together. And God, we just, we invite you to speak to our hearts and our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start with a question. When it comes to rules, what would you say is your attitude towards rules like what, what's your attitude when you hear a rule what's your kind of attitude towards it maybe it's like general macarthur a uh, famous u.s general he famously said this he said rules are mostly made to be broken and are too often for the lazy to hide behind that was his view of rules uh, as i did a little search this week uh, interestingly enough uh, macarthur was uh sent off to an early retirement because he didn't really follow the chain of command very well um now, when it comes to rules, you may, it may, you may not go that far as say, hey, rules are meant to be broken. You know, I think a lot of us, when it comes to rules, it's like, well, if it's a good rule, then it's a good rule to follow. But if it's a bad rule, then it's 
not a good rule for me to follow, and those are sort of optional, right? And I can remember, you know, as we all went through COVID together, and there were rules that were made, and we're like, who made that rule? Like, I'm riding on an elevator by myself, and I have to have a mask on. Who made that rule, right? So there's those kinds of things where we go, I think a lot of us go, well, I like to follow good rules, but bad rules are for somebody else. When my son, uh, Will, who is a sophomore in college right now, when he was a toddler, he was quite the rule follower. And I can remember one time that we were having a conversation, uh, and it was cold outside, and he was wearing shorts in the house. And I said, Will, you need to put on some pants and a long sleeve shirt because we're going to go outside, right? And he looks at me, and every toddler says this the world over and says, why, Daddy? Right? And so I looked at him in my parent uh, look, and I said, well, Will, why do you think? And he says, because you say so? I'm like, that's a great answer. Yes, because I say so, right? If only that would have carried on for the next 18 years of his life, uh, especially at those times when he thought that speed limit signs were pretty optional in his life. When we are in God's family, God gives us rules, or we would call them commands, for how we are to live. Now, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, remember, and I've said this a couple times, this was written for Christians. This was written for believers. This was written for people who are in God's family. And so if you're a person here and you're investigating faith, you just came to watch somebody else get baptized, this doesn't necessarily apply to you. You can certainly apply it, but Paul is writing these things for people who say, yes, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ. When it comes to the rules of God or the commands of God, I want to put them this morning into two very broad categories. There's a lot of different ways to divide them up, but two very broad categories. One category are those rules that we want to obey and those commands, those commands that we want to obey and those commands that we really don't want to obey if we're honest with ourselves, right? And so when we talk about uh, commands that we want to obey, there's a lot of commands that we read them, we hear them, we see them, and we go, yeah, I want to obey that. I want to follow that command. You know, the command, do not be anxious, do not worry. I think most of us would look at that and say, yeah, I, I want to follow that command. I may not do it perfectly. I may not know how to do it. I'd like some help there. That's a message some other time. But we'd say, yes, when it comes to that command, do not worry, do not be anxious. I want to follow that command. I don't think anybody wakes up and goes, I really want to be anxious today. Like nobody that I know lives in that world, okay? Now, the other category is those commands that we don't really want to follow, right? The command, do not lie, right? We'll just take that one. Like, so most of us would say, well, I don't want to lie like all the time, but there are definitely times when I would like to lie because if I lie, it's easier than telling the truth, and I feel like the consequences of telling the truth might be more dire than lying, and so I'd kind of like to lie in this situation, right? And so we could take all of the commands that God gives in the Bible, and I read some um, statistic this week or a number this week, it's something like 1,152 commands or something like that, but if we were to look at all of those, we would each, we could each divide those into these two separate categories, and it would be different for all of us. There'd be some commands that I would say, yeah, I really want to follow this one, and other ones would be like, I, I don't really want to follow it, you know? And for that same command, you might look at it differently, and the person next to you might look at it differently. But we all would kind of look at these commands and say, yeah, I like to follow that one, and that one, it's like, I, I don't really want to follow that. See, here's the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning, right? 
what do we do when we come across commands that we don't really want to follow? What do we do in that situation? Because I think there's a couple of different options when we come to those types of commands. One is we could pretend that I've never heard it. Like, uh, I'm just going to conveniently forget that I'm not supposed to or that I am supposed to, right? We kind of conveniently forget that. Another way that we deal with it is we, could, we can rationalize it or justify it and say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Or that was written so long ago, that certainly doesn't apply to me. Or if God knew my situation, he would give me an exception clause to this commandment, right? And so we could kind of justify, and that's one way that we deal with it. A third way uh, is that we kind of take the, a little disobedience is not a big deal tact, right? So it's like, well, it's just a little thing. It's not like a major, major thing. And so I'll just do a little bit of gossip. I'll just do a little bit of lust. I'll just tell a small lie, right? We kind of say, well, it's not, it's not a big thing. It's a small part of it, so I'm okay. We can take that tact. Or the other thing that we do, the other approach to the commands that we don't really want to follow is what I would call the grace way, right? We go, you know, I'm a Christian, and I know that God forgives me, and so I can go ahead and commit this sin. I can break this command, and God is going to forgive me anyway, and so I'll take that tact, right? So those are maybe four ways. Maybe you could add some more to that. And if I'm honest with you in full transparency, I have used all four of these from time to time throughout my life to violate the commands of God, right? And if you're honest with yourself, you would say you've probably done the same thing. But the question is, is there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way than just trying to get around them, of just trying to ignore them, of just trying to kind of say, hey, well, grace will cover and I'll go for it. There's got to be a better way of dealing with these commands that we don't really want to obey and follow in our lives. Now, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 6 in just a minute, but I want to share another kind of illustration to set this up. When you, suppose that you have a child, and in your house there's a front lawn, and the front lawn leads into the street, right? And so in your family, you know, you guys play ball in the front yard, bunch, and occasionally the ball is going to go, and it's going to roll across and into the street and across the street, right? And so you, as a good parent... You tell your child, hey, if the ball goes into the street, you need to stop at the edge of the street, look both ways, and then go get the ball. Don't go, this is the command, don't go charging across the street, right? Now, would you all agree that that's a good command as a parent? Is there anybody that would like to disagree that's a good command? Good, all right, thank you. So, now let's suppose this. Your child says, I don't like that command. I just want to go running after the ball. I got to get the ball quick and we got to keep playing. What would you do as a parent in that situation if your child says, I don't want to stop and look for cars. I just want to go charging across. Well, what you would probably not do is say, you know what? You just run after the ball and then ask for forgiveness later. It'll be fine. Right? Or won't you just justify the fact that it's just a small ball that went, it wasn't a big ball, and so it's fine to go get it. Right? You, wouldn't, you wouldn't encourage your child to do that. If your child said, why do I have to stop before I go get the ball, you would explain to them the why behind the what. So the what is, 
Thou shalt not run into the street after a ball without looking. And you explain to them why, right? And you might sit down and say, see the cars coming by, and they don't see you, and you're small. And you would explain why it is that you have that rule, that command in place in your yard. Now, let me add to this, and again, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians in just a second. I want you to imagine that you lived on a street where all the other parents let their kids run into the street after the ball, right? They're all they're like, ah, just run into the street. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And your child comes to you and says, all the other kids around are running into the street after the ball, but I have to wait by the street before I go into the street. Would that change your point of view? The answer is no, hopefully, right? You would go, no. And the, but your child goes, but, but all the other kids do it, and they're not getting hit by cars. Why can't I do it? That would make it a bit more complicated in your situation. Such was the case in Corinth, that there was a sin that was so pervasive and so um, abounding in Corinth that Paul takes an extended time, really a chapter, really even more than a chapter, to explain the why behind the what of the command. So let me give you the command. Here was the command. He says this. It says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Flee from sexual immorality. And everybody in Corinth was running after the ball in the street, so to speak. Everybody in Corinth was, very, was a very sexually immoral city. A couple of things uh, in my research that I learned. Uh, the city of Corinth is about, I mean, it kind of changes, but about 90,000 people at that time. And in the city of Corinth, there are a thousand prostitutes, male and female. Like, that's one prostitute for every 90 people. That's a pretty astounding statistic. There was a word that was coined at the time. It was the word Corinthianize, and it meant to become sexually promiscuous. So you would Corinthianize somebody by making them become sexually promiscuous. Sexual immorality was everywhere. As we look at this, we ask the question, how much is Corinth like the U.S.? Because I would say it's very, very similar. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to address the why behind the what when it comes to sexual immorality in these verses in chapter, um, in chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul lists 10 different sins. Okay, four of these 10 sins have to do with sexual immorality. And then he says this in verse 11. He says this, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of God. He says that these sins, and you can read them on your own if you want, but these 10 sins, these are things that he calls unrighteous and wicked, depending on your translation, but they were sins that characterized somebody's life. But he says, but that's what some of you were, past tense. He says, but now you've been washed. In other words, that God made you clean. You didn't clean yourself up, but God washed you. He says, and you've been sanctified. You left that old life and you have this new life, and you're sanctified. You have this purpose for living that wasn't what you lived for before. And then he says, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you were justified, that you were made right 
in God's eyes. Because Jesus Christ died for you and rose from the dead, and you placed your faith in him, then Christ is in you. And so when God looks at you, he sees Christ's perfection and not your sin. That's what it means to be justified. He says, that was your old life, but now you are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified. That means that you have a new identity. You have a new identity. Now, if you look at your outline, it says, I obey the commands, I obey God's commands because. Now, as I said a moment ago, Paul is writing this section addressing specifically sexual immorality. And we're going to talk about that, and that's going to be woven in here a bit. But I want us to take a step back and generalize this because I think there's a lot of sins that we look at and go, I don't really want to obey this. And I don't really understand why it does. I don't, I don't want to for whatever reason. And so as I phrase these, the outline we're going to talk about in a general way when what we do when we encounter these commands that we don't want to follow and why does God say to follow his commands. So the first one is this. I obey God's commands because a new family has new rules. It says that you are in a new family. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, you leave your old life, you come into your new life. You are now in the family of God. Many of you know that Stacy and I do foster care, right? And so we've had a, about 10 different kids in our homes. Um, and when they come into our home, they are a part of our family. And so we have the Santon family rules that we have these kids and we ask these kids to follow because they're in a new family, right? And so the kids that we have now, they're great kids, fantastic, a ton of fun. We've had some ones in the past that have been pretty difficult, right? And the rules part for them was pretty challenging. You, you can't stay up all night and watch video games. Seems like a pretty good rule. You can't steal money from my dresser. Seems like a pretty good rule, right? You can't mouth off to Stacy. Seems like a pretty good rule. But they didn't always want to follow those rules. And so we said, this is a new family, a new rule. And the same is true for us, that when we enter the family of God, we are entering into under the commands and the rules of what God says. It's a new family, and so we have new rules. At the very end of the passage, I'm going to skip down to the end because it's the same theme. Paul says this. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why follow God's rules? Because your life is not your own. It is that we were bought with a price. And so what that means is that we honor God with our bodies. And he continues on. Verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So twice in there he has this phrase, all things are lawful for me. What he's doing, he's quoting, and, and your um, version probably has it in quotations. Uh, it's, he's quoting a Corinthian proverb, kind of a saying that they say. It's like, hey, anything that's lawful, if it's not illegal, then go ahead and do it. That was the way that they lived life. Hey, if it's not illegal, then we can go ahead and do it. It doesn't matter what it is. And we put that a little bit differently in our society. We tend to say, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's fine to do. If it's two consenting adults, then it's fine. I can choose to love who I want to love. Who are you to say any different? That's the tendency that we kind of look at. That's sort of our modern proverb. But Paul says, he kind of asks two questions about it. He says, it's lawful, but is it helpful? 
It may be lawful, it may not be illegal, but does it dominate you? Does it control you when you do whatever this thing it is? Takes us to the second reason to obey God's commands. I obey God's commands because all God's commandments are for my good. All God's commandments are for my good. If you think about the ball in the street analogy that I gave you at the beginning, does that commandment that a a parent gives a child, does that exist for the parent or does it exist for the child? Well, it exists for the child to make sure the child doesn't get run over. He doesn't necessarily see the good in it, and so the parent explains that to him. When I was in college, um, I had an aha moment. And, And up until that point, I'd been a Christian for about maybe three or four years. Uh, and, and I kind of looked at God's commandments. And I said, well, these are just things that he wants me to obey. Just, and I, I didn't really give much thought as to why. I was just like, well, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do this. I want to do this, but I don't want to do that. I want to follow this. And, I just, and then I had sort of an aha moment, kind of an epiphany in, early in college. And I realized that every command, everything that God says is for my good. And it completely transformed the way that I looked at the Bible and the way that I looked at the commands of God. Because now, like, the more commands that I can find and learn and understand and apply, the more God puts me in a place for my own good. And he continues on in verse 13. It says, Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. So again, this is another Corinthian proverb. It says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That was their way of saying, if you have a need, fulfill it, right? So I'm hungry, right? So I feel hunger. My stomach is giving some pain. So what does that mean? That means that I should eat, right? And then they would take that and they would apply it to the sexual realm of life saying, well, I have urges in my body. Therefore, I should act on them kind of explains why they had a thousand prostitutes in a pretty small-sized city, right? Well, if I have an urge, I need someone to act this out, and so that was a part of it. Then he continues on. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. So here's the third reason to obey the commands of God. I obey God's commandments, commands because a desire does not justify a sin. That was the Corinthian view. That, hey, I've got this desire, and so all desires come from God, and so I need to fulfill this. If, God, if I have the desire, if I have this attraction, if I, have, if I want to, then I need to fulfill it, Right? And what he's saying, he's saying, no, that's not the way it works. So as we look at this, just remember that a desire does not necessarily mean it's from God, doesn't justify a sin. So then he continues on. He says this. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So he's asking kind of a rhetorical question here, and he's being pretty graphic about this. He says, you as a believer are part of Christ's body. And if you are a part of Christ's body, is it appropriate to put a part of your body into a prostitute? That's a pretty graphic look at it. 
let that sink in for a second. He's saying, should you do that? If Christ is in your body, should you do this with your body? Which is why he has this big exclamation point answer of never. Of course not. That would be ridiculous. Then he continues on. He says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he's saying the act of sex, it's not just a physical act. It's not just a physical thing. He does this, she does this. And he's saying, no, there is so much more to it. He's saying that there is, you become one flesh. There is, he says, you become one in spirit with that person. Now, he uses the example of, a, of sex with a prostitution because if there was ever a time where we would say, well, it's just a transaction. It's just a physical thing. It's a money for sex kind of thing. And it's not emotional or spiritual or connectedness. It would be in that situation, wouldn't it? But he's saying, even in that situation, that's why he pulls this example. He says, even in this situation, there's a joining together of emotion and spirit that you may not even be aware of. And so he writes this, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So Paul steps back and generalizes what he's just said about sex with a prostitute to all sexual immorality. Because when a person commits a sexual sin, it's different than all other sins because it is against his own body. You go, well, why is that a problem? It's, it's your own body. Why is it a problem to sin against your own body? Well, actually, it's not your own body. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So what he's saying is that these commandments are not victimless when you commit commandments, that all these commandments, essentially, when we violate them, have a victim. And so we put it this way. It says, I obey God's commands because sin is harmful. Because sin is harmful. Whenever we commit a Whenever we break a command, it causes harm to something or someone and or to God. Um, as I said, I've, I've wanted to generalize these um, so that it applies to whatever kind of sin is in your mind that you're dealing with. But I want to, with this one, give you kind of a 4A uh, and fill in the blank a little bit more. And it's this. Is sexual sin harms God, me, my partner, and our future spouses? It harms God because the Holy Spirit is in us and he's harmed when we commit a sexual sin. It also harms us because when we give ourselves to somebody else, it is not, as Paul said, it is not just a physical act. We are giving ourselves away in so much more than that. When you have sex with somebody or when you view pornographic images, when you do those things, there are images and memories that stay with you. That those things, they don't just kind of leave your, when you leave the room, they leave your mind. They stay with you. And so one of the reasons that God says that sex is to be inside of a marriage for a husband and wife only, and all of the things outside of that are sexual immorality, one of the reasons that he says that is because it's for your protection. Because he doesn't want you to have those images 
and memories and thoughts of other people when you are married to this person that you're with. Sexual sin also harms our future spouse. And what I mean by this is that when you sleep with somebody that you are not married to, you are sleeping with someone who will be somebody else's husband or wife one day. We go, well, we're going to get married. Well, then get married, right? If if that's your justification, well, then, then get married and then make it right in God's eyes. You know, again, Paul has dove deep here on sexual sin because of the situation going on in Corinth. And I think that's the situation going on in America today as well. And he goes to great lengths to do it. But I want to broaden it again for a moment. Because every command that God gives is for our good. Every command that God gives is to keep us from being harmed. Okay? And you may have some sins that you struggle with. I really don't want to follow that command. I really just prefer to kind of do the grace way or justify or say it's not that big of a deal. But God does says it, and how do I deal with it? And I'll encourage you, as you deal with sin of that nature or commands of that nature, is to ask the, the why question. What's the why behind the what? Because God's commands are not arbitrary. God's commands are for your good. God's commands are to keep you from harm. And if you don't know why, then figure it out. Read the context of it. Look at other people. Ask some people. Say, why does God say this? This just seems kind of random. I don't see why God would say this. To ask those questions, go to somebody who's wiser than you. I want to close for a minute and just give you a a moment to pause. I realize um, that this morning... There's been a heavy emphasis on sin and sexual sin and that that may cause you to have some guilt or some shame or some regret in life. And I just want you to bow your head and I just want you to hear a verse for a moment. It says this. It says, you were washed and you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Hear that again. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. If you're here this morning and you're dealing with guilt, dealing with shame about sin of the past, know that you are washed. You are justified, and God has sanctified you and set you apart for something better. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words from Paul. Difficult though they are, God, I thank you that you gave them to Paul to give to us, that you would show us the boundaries of life and where to live and where your goodness is found. And God, for those who are here this morning, dealing with sexual sin currently in their lives, Lord, give them the courage and the strength and the understanding to know how to live and why to live according to your plan. And for those who are here this morning that maybe have some guilt and some feelings and some thoughts from the past, God, I pray that you would heal their minds and hearts and that they would know that they are forgiven. 
because you say it. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are redeemed by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your goodness that we don't have to hold on to our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.